0: This episode features dramatizations of graphic violence and discussions of colonialism and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars. Today's episode combines features from a number of Victorian period elements for dramatic effect. Hello everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson and welcome to Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. The truth is, myth is continually being made. Whenever societies shift, whenever they face an existential threat, they tell themselves a story, and no era needed its tales of horror as much as the British Empire. This is Mythical Monsters, Victorian Monsters. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today's monster, the Victorian Mummy, is a particularly unique construction. Born from curiosity, fetish, and body horror, this creature is an ancient, vengeful corpse. It lay silent for centuries, waiting with supernatural patience for its moment to wreak havoc on the world. And if that weren't terrifying enough to the Prim-Victorians, this mummy is also a woman. Coming up, we unwrap a murderous mummy.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be.
0: In 1798, Napoleon invaded Egypt and ignited Europe's obsession with its ancient culture. An army of scientists, architects, and historians descended on the country to collect stories, art, and artifacts for transport back to Europe. And nothing was more in demand than mummies. Some were collected for museums, but others were purchased for entertainment, like private unwrapping parties held by Britain's upper set. The Egyptian government cracked down on exports in 1835, but the ban didn't slow the trade. Souvenirs just became travel-sized. Bones, hands, and severed heads were ripped from mummies and smuggled piecemeal via tourists' luggage. These stolen pieces of ancient history also sparked a subgenre of Victorian literature, One of the first pieces of European fiction about mummies is the 1840 story, The Mummy's Foot by Théophile Gautier. The story follows a man who buys the severed foot of an Egyptian princess and is transported to ancient Egypt to return it to her. He proposes marriage, but her family declines, not because he purchased her defiled remains, but because he is too young for her. But these Egyptian gothics weren't always romances. In 1903, Irish writer Bram Stoker published a novel called The Jewel of Seven Stars. Stoker's mummy isn't a princess, but a seven-fingered queen, one who planned to rule the world before her death and after. Margaret Trelawney was sent away to boarding school before she could speak. She'd spent years nodding and curtsying and listening and smiling, all to become the perfect Victorian woman when she finally emerged. Now she was 19 and finally old enough to be interesting. So her widowed father, Egyptologist Abel Trelawney, agreed to bring her home to London. Trelawney had kept up correspondence with Margaret while she was in school, lamenting about his prestigious work and many social commitments, so much so that Margaret took Trelawney to be a social butterfly, a man about town. But when Margaret was first led into her father's dusty townhouse, she'd been shocked to see how he really lived, surrounded by artifacts of the past. There were canopic jars in the living room and a large, ornate sarcophagi in the study. The most striking room was the office. Trelawney showed it to her with pride, pointing out his most precious heirlooms, framed papyrus, ancient idols, and at the center of it all, a large safe. Hieroglyphics of ankhs and coal-covered eyes were etched into its steel. Margaret was puzzled. Did you carve the safe up to match everything else? Trelawney laughed, but stopped when he saw her blush. I'm sorry, my child. I suppose they don't teach Egyptology in finishing school. It was true, but Margaret didn't want her father to think she'd learned nothing. No, but I am well versed in the work of Amelia Edwards. Trelawney scoffed. Edwards, no, no, I doubt a woman can comprehend this field of study, not the benefits and certainly not the risks. Margaret didn't like his tone. Risks? These beings are long dead. Trelawney's eyes glinted in the firelight. They are, yes, except for Queen Terra. Margaret racked her brain. All she knew were the pharaohs, but then her father told her Tara was a pharaoh, Egypt's only woman pharaoh, a master of statecraft, art, and magic. She etched the true names of the gods into a great seven-pointed ruby. In doing so, she took their powers for her own. Trelawney's voice took on a teacherly tone as he explained that seven was a sacred number in Egypt and it was significant that Tara had been born with seven fingers on her right hand. Even her mummified lion was seven cubits long. Margaret leaned in, mesmerized by his tail. What happened to her? Trelawney explained that Tara believed the priesthood would try to erase her from the walls of the palaces and temples she'd built, and losing one's name meant you would be unable to enter the afterlife. Margaret was horrified. What could the queen have done to deserve such a fate? Trelawney chuckled. Jealousy. She was more powerful than the priests. It's as simple as that. But I wouldn't be too concerned about her. She took steps to ensure her resurrection on a certain day in the far future. In this future. In three days, she'll use the ruby I keep in that safe to live again. Margaret shivered. Is that why you keep it locked away? Trelawney laughed. No, my dear, I keep it in a safe because I won't have frivolous young women trying it on willy-nilly. Margaret was offended, but the story had also rattled her. She stared at the safe with trepidation. Trelawney put a comforting hand on her shoulder. It's just a story. Anyway, legend claims she needs a pair of lanterns to complete the resurrection, and I didn't find any in her tomb. Now to bed with you. I've arranged for a nice young man to meet you in the morning. It took Margaret a moment to understand her father's implication. But I just got here. I don't wish to marry yet. Trelawney sighed and placed his hand against her cheek. You of us do, dearest. Margaret went to bed seething. Her father barely knew her, and he was already making decisions for her. Queen Tara wouldn't have let that happen. Margaret would give anything to have a magic seven-fingered hand and a pet lion to make her point. It took her the better part of the night, but visions of antiquity eventually rocked her to sleep. Margaret woke in pitch black, unsure what had roused her. Had she heard a her? No, her father didn't have a cat. She shivered, realizing the room was icy cold. Her breath swirled in the air. She called into the darkness, Hello? There was nothing there. Or there was something. The faintest scent of flowers. Margaret went to her door. The smell was stronger there flowers and wood and salt. When she lowered her eye to the keyhole, she heard a soft rattling. A shadow passed by the hallway outside her door. Something was out there. She was tempted to rush back to her bed and hide, but a question floated to mind. What would Tara do? Without another thought, she opened the door. The night stretched around Margaret as she stepped into the hall. It was like diving into cold water. She reached for the electric light switch, but when she flicked it, nothing happened. So she walked on in darkness until she passed Trelawney's office. The door was open and in the bluish moonlight, she could see a limp figure laying on the ground, her father. Margaret screamed and ran to him. His eyes were closed and he was very still. She pressed her ear to his chest, searching for breath, but she could find none. And then she noticed it. A red handprint extended all the way around his throat. Its fingers were long and thin, and there were seven of them. Coming up, Tara speaks
2: for herself. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases the stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility. And some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister, Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify.
0: Now back to the story. <laughs> Tara watched from the shadows as the girl cried over her father. She did not understand what was so upsetting. Trelawney was just a man, a blip in the cosmos. Tara, on the other hand, was important. She was a sorceress, a queen, a god. But now, for a millennia, all she'd been able to do was wait. She had waited almost 5,000 years before Trelawney and his little friends entered her tomb. At first, she was livid at their disrespect. But then she realized it was an opportunity. A pair of lanterns were stolen from her years before. Without them, she had no way of completing the ritual that would resurrect her. Since Trelawney hoarded artifacts like her priests had hoarded gold, she let him take her away. She knew that such a man could be her only chance to find her precious lamps. And then she'd waited again. It had been torture, laying helplessly in his pale tomb of a house. She could feel the other tools she needed. Her seven-point ruby lay in a safe nearby. The mummified body of her beautiful lion, Sekhmet, was tucked away in a dark corner. But even though she craved their touch, They were not enough, and so she waited, knowing her day of resurrection drew near, but not having the strength to act, to move, to find those lamps. Then Margaret had arrived, beautiful Margaret. Miraculously, Margaret's presence gave Tara new strength. Finally, she could speak again. She could push and pull and squeeze so she squeezed Trelawney's neck a bit too hard. Oops, Margaret let out another ragged wail, pulling Tara from her thoughts. Time was running out, night would end and she'd lose another chance to live again. This called for a show of force, one that Margaret would hopefully appreciate. Margaret smelled that strange, salty flower smell again and then in the light of the moon, she saw a figure. Gossamer and glinting, statuesque and pale, a beautiful woman with long, dark hair stood in the room's shadows. Golden beetles flew around her, landing every now and then over her heart, her stomach, her hands. Her silhouette seemed to shimmer, a living, flickering photograph. Margaret stumbled backwards. you The woman smiled.
3: Your queen, yes.
0: Margaret's chest constricted. Queen Tara, help him. Whatever he did, forgive him, please. I have no one else. Tara smiled kindly.
3: You have me, Margaret, and I will help.
0: She waved a hand at Trelawney. Immediately, he gasped a hoarse breath, then promptly fainted. But at least he was breathing. Margaret jumped up. Thank you. How can I repay you? I'll do anything. Tara's form flickered again, changing from woman to shadow for just an instant.
3: Your father told you of my lanterns, yes? I need them desperately.
0: Margaret blinked. They could be anywhere in the world. Tara smiled.
3: I can tell you exactly where they are. I was urging your father to do the right thing, but he insisted I was a dream.
0: Margaret nodded. He doesn't believe in you. Tara's queenly face rippled with annoyance.
3: I am aware. Will you assist?
0: Margaret considered Tara's urging had left her father near death. It didn't seem wise to trust her. I can't, I have a gentleman caller in the morning, and my father is sick. Tara advanced, stepping out of the moonlight. At first, Margaret thought it was a trick of the darkness, but when she blinked, it was still there. Tara's perfect face was now covered in bandages, tight and pale, crossed to make perfect squares, one inside the other. Tara whispered, her voice sickly sweet,
3: Is something wrong, Margaret?
0: Tara moved closer. The bandages fell away, revealing flaking, desiccated flesh. Margaret backed up, shaking. No, not at all. I just need to attend to my father. Tara reached up and touched her own face. Margaret expected to see fear or revulsion, some kind of shame. But Tara just sighed.
3: It takes great effort to make sure you see what you want to see. Power I do not have to spare. So please remember that I didn't want to do this.
0: White ash rose from Tara's form. The air around her grew hotter until Tara dissolved into smoke. (coughs) Margaret choked as the ashy vapor quickly slipped up her nose and down her throat. Tara was inside her. It was not altogether unpleasant. Margaret had only recently grown out of that awkward stage where her body always felt too big or too small. Somehow, Tara made her stronger. Like others' opinions, didn't matter. She'd never felt that way before. And she loved it. Tara purred in her head.
3: See? This isn't so bad. I only need an hour or two.
0: Margaret watched her hand raise. She hadn't meant to move it. She tried to put it back down, but her arm didn't obey. It just hung there, fingers playing in the moonlight. Tara sighed contentedly in her head. I missed this. Margaret tried to speak, but her throat was not her own either. So she pleaded in her mind. Please stop, I'll help. Tara walked Margaret's body down the hallway and to the stairs. She paused to admire herself in a mirror.
3: You are helping.
0: Margaret's feet moved at Tara's will, hurriedly descending into the dark parlor. A huge, heavy growl echoed through the lower level of the house. Two golden eyes glinted in the darkness. Something heavy waited there. Margaret felt her throat vibrate with an unbidden call.
3: Sekmet, I've missed you, so come to me.
0: Tara threw Margaret's arms open. A large lion strode out of the shadows. Its face was covered by a long cloth. Eyes, nose, and ears had been penciled on it in deep black. It would have been magnificent if the lion wasn't dead. It bounded up and jumped into Margaret's small arms. It smelled like sap and salt, and its skin was nothing but sticky, torn bandages. Tara didn't care. She used Margaret's hands to hug her pet tight. Margaret felt crackling beneath her fingers as the creature's taut, dry skin broke and snapped. Moldering jaws stretched its wrappings to the limit, A shriveled tongue licked Margaret's face. Tara laughed.
3: Now, let's go shopping.
0: Sekhmet led the way out the front door and into the fog. Margaret silently pleaded, I'll catch cold if you could wait a few hours. She immediately felt a seven-fingered grip squeeze inside her ribcage. Tara's echoing voice was filled with venom.
3: I have waited centuries for this. You will do as I say.
0: All the shop windows were dark. The glass turned obsidian in the shadows. Margaret passed in eerie silence, Tara controlling her every move. Sekmet purred and chuffed beside her, pleased to be out in all her rotten glory. She bumped against Margaret's legs, leaving sticky cloth and bits of viscera behind. They soon reached an antique shop with a bell above the door. Tara placed Margaret's hand against the keyhole. It gave a small click, and the door swung open. Margaret was forced inside, wondering, if Tara can do this, why can't she get the lanterns herself? Tara's silent hiss startled Margaret.
3: I can enact small changes, not large ones.
0: Margaret watched her own hands take two unassuming clay oil lamps from the shop's shelf.
3: For these, I need strength, which you have, more than you know. But I won't depend on you forever. In two days' time, I will be the most powerful entity your world has ever seen.
0: A small gasp came from the back of the shop. Margaret froze. Sekhmet did too, gazing into the darkness, fangs bared. Margaret prayed the sound wasn't what she expected, but she wasn't that lucky. An old man stepped into the light slowly. A very pretty thief, but a thief nonetheless. Come closer, girl, and hand them over. He was staring at Margaret, leering really, which meant he didn't see Sekmet. The lion pounced, ripping and tearing with wild abandon. Margaret tried to look away, but her eyes weren't her own, and Tara wanted to watch. The shopkeeper's face was nothing but wet, sticky ribbons. Sekmet offered her mistress a bloody grin, then went back to eating the man's head. Margaret felt her mouth spread into a smile, even as she cried inside. Tara tutted at her.
3: He is the thief. They all are. You can't argue with me.
0: Margaret was so angry, her voice finally managed to break Tara's hold. She screeched, You won't let me argue! You won't let me do anything! Tara snapped Margaret's jaw shut. Her exhalation of breath echoed in the cave of Margaret's mind.
3: You're right, I won't. Your father, your people, have taken my home and my country and my life. So now, I will take yours to build a world worthy of me. And when that is done, I will burn England, Europe, and all men to the ground.
0: Margaret screamed in her mind, loud enough to feel her whole body shake, But no one could hear a word. Coming up, Tara keeps her deadly promise.
1: Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker play the game and you could win money up to 2 million dollars with more than 88 million in prizes ranging from 50 to 500 dollars money maker cuts right to the cash lottery players are subject to ohio laws and commission regulations play responsibly
0: now back to the story malcolm ross nervously adjusted his ascot as he sat in Trelawney's parlor When Margaret canceled their visit two days earlier, he'd lost all hope of meeting the daughter of the famous Egyptologist. But tonight, he had another chance. He'd been invited for dinner, and now he not only found himself in the presence of the great Abel Trelawney and a few of his students, but with Margaret. She was worth the wait, queenly and delicate, and yet she showed all the wit of the Victorian new woman as she kept up with her father's every remark. Oh, no, father. I do believe you'll find that was Thutmose the Third. Trelawney looked impressed. You've been particularly sharp lately, Margaret, and now you're taking advantage of an old man's age. I see none of my students are wise enough to defend me. If only Lessingham were here. Margaret smiled, Oh, I don't think we need any more lawyers. You've got a perfectly lovely one right here in Malcolm, even if he knows nothing of Egypt. Malcolm went beet red as Margaret continued. I'm sure we can teach him. Tell him about Queen Tara, father. Trelawney looked confused. Oh, we don't need to turn this into a lecture. Margaret sipped her drink. But she's fascinating, father. Your life's work. The other men cajoled him into telling the tale. Malcolm was intrigued, and as Trelawney reluctantly recited Tara's story, Malcolm saw Margaret's eyes glimmer. When the Egyptologist finished, Malcolm searched for something to say. So she is to rise tonight then? Trelawney shook his head. Well, she might have, if the legend was real. And even if it were, I don't have all the objects the Resurrection is said to require. Margaret dashed over to the dessert tray. Speaking of, I got you a present. She pulled the sheet off the tray to reveal two clay lamps. Trelawney's jaw dropped. Margaret begged, Come, Father, it is a once-in-an-eternity event. Let us see if we can raise her. Trelawney sputtered, Margaret, where did you, what has gotten into you? Malcolm could tell Trelawney was about to refuse, but his students cheered in excitement, egging him on. Margaret pleaded most of all, please father, it will be a fun night's entertainment. Your guests will go on from your parlor telling all of London about Abel Trelawney's Egyptian party. That did the trick. Trelawney looked a little dazed, but he nodded his assent. Malcolm helped the professor set up in the parlor. There was a large sarcophagus, two lanterns, a mummified lion, and something in a safe that Trelawney didn't want to reveal until the last minute. It took all of them to move Queen Tara's mummy from her sarcophagus and onto the dining table. Once Malcolm stepped back, what he was seeing finally sank in. A real Egyptian mummy. He'd heard about them, of course, but never thought he'd actually see one with his own eyes. She was smaller than Malcolm imagined, and more delicate. Her wrappings were intricately arranged in geometric patterns. Trelawney looked equally enthralled. Then, he pulled a knife from a toolkit and stood over the body. A sharp voice cut through the joviality. Margaret. What are you doing? Trelawney was puzzled. I'm going to unswath her, my dear. Surely we must serve science before we serve any supposed magic. Malcolm didn't know if he'd ever seen anyone so angry. Margaret positively seethed. You would undress a dead woman? Trelawney scoffed. Not a woman, dear. A mummy. Margaret's voice was ice. Her sex has not changed in 5,000 years, even if she wanted it to, and you would undress her here in front of all of these men? Malcolm looked to the others. Was this uncouth? He was not as educated as they. Trelawney frowned. Who knew you cared so much about my work? Perhaps you would rather we call the whole thing off? Malcolm could see the battle of wills happening between them, It was a history he didn't quite understand, but if he wanted to join this family one day, he'd have to play peacemaker. Margaret, uh, if it makes you more comfortable, I'll step away. I've no academic reason to be here. For a moment, he thought Margaret was going to cry. Her lip quivered and her eyes turned wide and frantic. She suddenly whispered, Yes, you must go now but then the queenly distance returned and she hardened. That is kind, but unnecessary. I'll excuse myself. Enjoy. She left, locking the door behind her. A part of Malcolm yearned to follow, but he had also never seen a mummy unwrapped before. This might be his only chance, and Margaret had given him permission. He could indulge his curiosity just this once it was slow going. The bandages were 5,000 years old, and they'd stuck to each other like glue. After the first layer or two, Trelawney began removing small talismans that were wrapped in the cloth, falcon eyes, half-animal, half-human figures, and carved beetles. Scarabs, Trelawney clarified. Then, after the sixth layer, they saw skin. It was so pale it was almost translucent. Malcolm was puzzled by how intact it was, but he didn't have time to inquire before Trelawney revealed the precious object from the safe, a seven-pointed ruby etched with hieroglyphics. It took Malcolm's breath away. Trelawney placed the jewel into the mummy's right palm, a seven-fingered hand. A hush fell over the room as Trelawney removed the last of the bandages, revealing a soft, strong, feminine frame. She was so well-preserved, one might think she was sleeping. The lights flickered, then the door to the parlor rattled on its hinges. Banging came from the other side. Margaret's muffled screams told them to stop what they were doing. They were in danger. The lights flickered again. The seven-fingered hand twitched ever so slightly. Malcolm blinked. He couldn't have just seen that, could he? Margaret's screams grew more frantic. Malcolm rushed over to let her in, but the door wouldn't budge. And then the ground shook. Malcolm braced himself against the table. Pale smoke filled the room, sending him into a panic. The last thing they needed was a fire, but the smoke moved in a singular cloud over to the mummy and descended into it. The seven-fingered hand flexed. The woman's naked chest rose and fell. Then her dark eyes opened. The lights went out. At first, all Malcolm heard was the wind, but then a rumbling followed by groans cracks, screams. Malcolm threw himself to the ground, shaking and covering his ears. After what felt like an eternity, the horrible sounds faded, leaving only Malcolm's labored breath. He heard the parlor door fall open and the light switched on. The yellow bulbs above revealed a massacre. Blood was splattered on the parlor's white walls and... Trelawney and his guests lay on the floor. Their bodies were askew, necks twisted and broken. Margaret stood in the open doorway, frozen in horror. Malcolm tore his eyes away from her to look at the examination table. The mummy, Queen Tara, was gone. Napoleon's 1798 survey of Egypt was an ideological invasion as well as a military one. It created what theorist Edward Said calls an image outside of history, where Egypt and other non-Western cultures are frozen in an imaginary ancient time. And it was this ancient time that Victorians sought to possess for themselves. The Victorians were so awed by the ancient Egyptians' achievements, They sometimes insisted they had more in common with them than contemporary Egyptians did. Some even suggested ancient Egyptians were white. Stoker follows this premise when he describes Tara's skin as ivory. But the reality of colonization was not a meeting between Brits and ancient white Egyptians contemporary Egyptians pushed back against British attempts to quote-unquote civilize them into Victorian society, leading to a series of nationalist revolts from the 1880s onwards. Stoker's mummy connects to this fear of rebellion in terms of literal revolt and in terms of gender. While white Egyptologists might have been able to study Egypt and its women, they could not truly control them, not even in death. One of ancient Egypt's most elusive women was the source of inspiration behind Stoker's terra, Hatshepsut, one of Egypt's female pharaohs. Egyptologist Howard Carter found Hatshepsut's tomb in the Valley of the Kings the year before the Jewel of Seven Stars was published. The strange thing was, when Carter eventually opened her sarcophagus, her mummy was missing. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with another Victorian monster, the Beetle. The Beetle's tale is also inspired by Egypt, but this monster is far messier than Queen Terra. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D Ritter and Jen Richey, with writing assistance by Kate Murdoch and Nora Battell, fact checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
2: I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from Podcast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.